Welcome to Feeling Asia and a podcast where two Asians talk about their feelings. I'm Youngmi Mayer. And I'm Brian Park. And we have such a amazing, an amazing guest today. I'm really excited. Oh, I mean, this is a really good. Bef- before, all of our guests are wonderful. Actually, I was lying. I've never <laughs> been excited for any guest. <laughs> Sorry if you're listening. I was faking it. But today, I'm actually excited. I'm just kidding. I love all our guests. And but however, before we introduce our wonderful, wonderful guest this week, we got to dive into our new Patreon shoutouts format. Uh, yeah, our new format. So if you're just joining us, a quick update: Young Me and I offer weekly Patreon episodes now. Uh, if you want to check those out, you can do so at Patreon.com/slash/FeelingAsian. And because our Patreon shoutouts were taking a little bit too long, we want to get to the good stuff right away. Uh, we're just going to do 10 quick shout outs with a positive affirmation. How's that sound? Yeah. And I don't really know what affirmations are. So I just say things that are kind of nice vaguely. I think that works. Right? Yeah. Okay, who's the first person? Uh, our first person goes out to Kailani G. I swear we did this one already. Don't you think? It's okay. Kailani, you're so special. This is your second one. <laughs> we love you. Caitlin Higa. Um, <laughs> you... Um, you make a wonderful breakfast every morning. Oh, I wish. Oh, my God. That's my dream person. <laughs> uh, Joanna Gee. Joanna Gee. Joanna Gee is extremely, extremely nice as a neighbor. <laughs> Jasmine Santilan. Jasmine, you are... Ooh... You are the hype man of your friend group. Yeah. Yeah. When everyone is like on the fence about going out, you're there to pull through. You pull out the bottle of tequila and just start pouring the shots. Always rallying the troops. (laughs) Angela Chian. Brian, if he met you, would have a huge crush on you. (laughs) So true. Uh, Jasmine Taeyang Sun Kim. You are, your parents are so proud of you and you are the apex cousin of your family and your parents do not pay your rent you pay your own rent <laughs> uh, yunji kim yunji your parents pay your rent but it's because they love you the most out of all your siblings <laughs> <laughs> um katrina matichik matichik katrina matichik you love going on museum dates but it is a privilege for your friends and your romantic partners to go to the museum with you because you actually know what the hell you're talking about when you're at the museum. Nice. Uh, Jenny Wang Medina. Jenny, um, oh, this is our friend. Yeah. Jenny, you are enough. <laughs> <laughs> and our last shout out goes out to Solomon Says. Solomon Says. Is that, is that a real last name? That's a cool last name. Says. Solomon, your last name is very real. And you are also enough. Why didn't they name you Simon? Simon says, sorry. Solomon, again, I want to stress that you are enough. You are Despite enough. We love you. Young me is trying to <laughs> insinuate. <laughs> Thank you so much for donating to our Patreon. And check out the bonus episodes every Sunday now. Yeah. Yeah. Patreon.com slash feeling Asian. And Young me, I think it's time to introduce our wonderful guest this week. Oh, again, I'm so excited. Right, right. No, this is... Listeners, you are in for a treat. First and foremost, let's reiterate, this is the only guest Young Me has ever been excited about. I've never cared about any other guest. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
listeners, please give your ears to the immensely talented writer, Alexander Chi. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. This, is this the I'm only podcast? I'm a regular pod- listener. I oh, am. Really? And I realized that I don't, uh, that I need to sign up for the Patreon, which I am doing right now. Click. <gasps> wow. Really? Okay, we'll give you some time to do that. <laughs> and then we'll shout you out too. I was like, oh my God, I'm not on the Patreon. Uh, <laughs> and then we'll say that you are enough. <laughs> I'm signing up at the chaotic baby level. Okay. Wow. wow. You're actually doing it right now. Wow. wow. This, this is, is exciting. This is a feeling Asian first. If you're listening and you haven't signed up, you should do it right now, too. It's a sign. <laughs> we should make this a new requirement for all of our guests. <laughs> Before we start. <laughs> Just slip it and slip it into the episode outline. Right. Uh, okay, so before we start, you must donate to our Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for donating. Do you really listen to our podcast? I'm so honored. Oh yeah, it's um. Oh, wow. I mean, uh, I'm a fan. <laughs> um, uh, it makes me laugh, and it's uh, and it's also like, it's it's also interesting to me how many of my of my like favorite comedians get real serious on their podcasts, also. Right. Um, right. Like, it's not just laughs. Um, and uh, yeah, it just is one of those, one of those things I chicken on the regular. You know, um, so I want to tell you something, Alexander. I have to say that every time I mention your name, everyone that I know is like, he's my favorite writer, like every <laughs> single time. And, and so I was like, um, this is like before, before I even knew you were going to be on the show. I feel like I would be like, oh, because I saw you on social media and I would say something and people would be like, he's my favorite writer. And then one time, I just want to tell you the story really quick. I went to lunch with my friend and her friend was there and he was like, oh my God. Like he was like, he was like shook to meet me. And I was like, why are you so excited to meet me? And he was like, I am the biggest fan of Alexander Chi and he like retweet, he like shared your tweet once and that's why I started following you. Like he was excited to meet me because he was your fan and you shared my tweet and I was like, thanks. Like just the fact that you shared my tweet, he was like, oh my God. Like he was like dying. That is, like, that is some real influence. Yeah, that you have is, some fans. You, you have you have some real power at a mouse click away. <laughs> I love my fans. <laughs> it's a special it's a special bunch. Um that's hilarious and and beloved. Um uh my thanks to this person if they are listening. He's definitely listening. Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> right, because now it's both of us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, Alexander, thank you again for joining us. And before we ask you how you're feeling, Youngmi, how are you feeling? All right. Uh, so I wanted to say this is kind of a little serious. I haven't really been talking about serious stuff recently, but I have this thing. I, you know, I have like a long history of depression and I also have like ADD, which I was diagnosed with fairly recently. And mm-hmm. this has helped me understand this, but I have like... Every time I wake up, I have like the most, I'm so low. Like I feel like catastrophically depressed. Mm. Like it's just like so dark. And 
you know, I recently started taking Adderall okay. because I think that's uh, my friend. She she also has ADD. Told me that like basically, if you have ADD, when you wake up, you're at like a deficit, like a dopamine deficit, and yeah. the medication really helps with that. Okay. And I have noticed that the medication has helped with that a lot, um, but it's not that it ever goes away. It's just that I feel it, and then I can take the medicine, and it helps me like bounce out of it really quick. I guess. Yeah. But I just, it's so, it's so dark, and I, I don't know, I don't know, and it's been like this my entire life. You know what I mean? And like, I don't know what to do or I don't, I don't know. I like don't want it to happen, but I like, I have no idea what to do. But then also, you know, we were making a joke about that funny tweet that we like, like, uh, there was this like viral tweet and it said, is, do I have body dysmorphia or am I just correct? Mm. Like there's a part of me where I'm like, I wake up and then I'm like, Maybe I'm rightfully depressed because everything is so horrible. Do you know what I mean? Like my brain is absorbing this information mm. and throughout the day I'm like distracting myself from it. But maybe I'm correct. Like I should feel this No. <laughs> you know? Well, because it's like, you know, like the coronavirus yeah, yeah. rates are crazy now. Right. And like there was this one day where I was walking around and it like I had this like crazy sort of anxiety attack like oh like the world is actually gonna end right. which sounds really dramatic but it's like am i cor like am i correct that it that is actually true right? <laughs> like we're all like living in the end times kind of and so i'm like maybe like waking up it's like my body's sort of like understanding that and then i'm like distracting myself with like medicating myself and like drinking coffee to like get away from that do you know mm. what i mean i don't know that's like i, was I don't know if they have to be so binary though yeah because that's the true. way you react to this sort of stimuli yeah it is uh it, i feel like it's just filtered through your internal state which is separate from what sort of outside events are occurring because i find right. like i find that when i'm in like a particularly good headspace and i'm not depressed even when I'm encountered with difficult situations or difficult news, I tend to have a more out optimistic outlook on it mm. than I normally would. Whereas if I'm kind of low and internally very depressed, I tend to be very cynical and very jaded. Right. And gray. But Yeah. And I remember we were talking about this thing where we read this where I read this article and it said like your body isn't reacting to like the world ending your body is reacting to the fact that you didn't drink enough water <laughs> like like it's just like why am i freaking out and then i eat something <laughs> alexander showed oh, me i was like yeah, uh, maybe i read that water. article also <laughs> <laughs> it's like your body like your brain can't process that kind of information it's, it's like you didn't eat today i'm like why am i so depressed it's like oh i have to uh just drink, drink some water, water and sleep at night <laughs> Or is it because the world is ending? <laughs> yeah. So like, but anyway, I just wanted to bring that up because I don't, I don't have like an answer to the morning depression thing. Yeah. But it's crazy. It's like every morning I wake up like catastrophic levels of depression is like for the first 
solid 15 minutes of my morning mm. and then i like drag my carcass out of bed <laughs> and like and like take medication or drink some waters and it it takes me like a solid like hour from waking up to feeling like i can make it through the day whoa it's like so int- and it just like sometimes it gets really bad but like recently it's been like really bad i just want to talk about it oh that's I'm how sorry I'm that sounds really difficult yeah it's weird yeah. i mean i'm sure a lot of people under- go through for sure that. i mean my mornings i stick by the same routine every day oh. go to the bathroom at the same time wake up at the same time eat the same thing for breakfast mm. just so i don't have to think or use my brain for an hour hour and a half mm. and when you know when things deviate from that i tend to get flustered very easily like today because you were yeah because i woke up at my girlfriend's place a little later than i planned yeah and, uh and you know that that's on me <laughs> and i just slept way too late but um maybe that's Maybe like I, I, I need to like massage my brain a little bit before I activate and enter into the world. Right. And by like having a really strict routine that helps me to do that. Maybe that would be helpful for me. I don't know. How are you feeling, Brian? Ooh, I'm feeling uh, good overall. Um, this is so. This is probably the last time I'll touch on all this because the tennis nerd in me is going haywire it's the u.s open and we have been so privileged to have the most amazing u.s open tournament by the time this episode comes out it's going to be done however on the women's so in the women's final it's two teenage girls 18 both 18 years old they're both biracial half asian nice and they're both so talented it's electric like both of them just out of seemingly out of nowhere have like beaten all the top players wow yeah that's so exciting so it's super exciting and then on the men's side uh we're about to witness history novak Djokovic is about to become cement himself as the greatest of all time so tennis is something i'm very passionate about wow this has just been like an incredible delight to watch uh career-wise things have been going well for me i think like yeah i've booked a couple um you know some voiceover work some acting jobs and i think this is going to touch on a little bit of what uh alexander you've written pieces on this where i like i'm so happy that i've like booked work and you know acting is one of those pursuits where the wins are far and few between but then when they do happen it kind of happens all at once yeah and anytime let's say anytime i do book something i just feel very grateful and that's like feeling of feeling great like this that feeling of gratitude like oh my gosh i booked this thing thank you so much yeah then it makes me feel like i shouldn't ask for more money do you know what i mean like i'm bad at negotiation <laughs> mm. when it happens like when that comes to play like scared. it's like they're they're like giving you a gift and you're like Ugh. right yeah, right and yeah. granted like yes the the pay is it, it wasn't disrespectful but a small part of me was like i've always been told that when it comes to negotiations i should oh just float another number by you should always ask for more yeah. in a corporate job if they give you a salary you should always push back and offer a higher number so they can meet you in the middle but why is it that whenever it's something where it's very creative Creative. non-corporate yeah yeah, like you you know in this case it's an acting gig the money is good but i'm like 
on principle, I should ask for more money, but why do I not want to? I don't want. I'm, yeah. I'm like, I don't want to be difficult. So yeah, I'm gonna sign this contract right away. Thank you so much. You know? Well, yeah, so Alexander, you've written a lot about this topic, right? I feel like I've. It is so complicated to, <laughs> uh, in some ways, and also it's very similar. Like, sorry, it's very simple. I just opened uh, a birthday card from uh, from from a friend that included like a little friendship bracelet that just said no. On it. Oh, I love that. No. And then a heart. Because <laughs> she had been over for dinner and I was, I was talking about how often, like when I get asked to do things, I'll, I'll be like, you know, thinking about everything except whether I want to do it. Right. You know? mm. Um, and, you know, and I, I recently, over the summer, there was a, uh, a writing gig that I, that I got where I, I was, I was like, actually, that is, that is not enough, even though it was like a dream mm-hmm. assignment. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I just actually, I let my agents play it out and mm-hmm. gradually the number went up miraculously <laughs> because I was not involved where I would right. like, you know, cave uh instantly i think i i always try to remember that my my price my rate is an emotional boundary because if i feel Mm. like i'm not getting paid Mm. enough i will Mm -hmm. start to hate them and then i'll hate the work and then i'll procrastinate and i'll do a bad Mm. job and then it reflects badly on me not on them um and and so i just try to i just try to think about like asking for enough money as self-care Ah, that's a really good point. that's a really great way of framing it so yeah that basically touches on how i've been feeling this past week where mm. you know i have some wins and some things to be grateful for and i'm really happy about but yeah. i, I want to be intelligent about how i uh enter this work yeah because you know? alexander i mean i'm at the stage of my whatever career that i get paid very little for anything <laughs> 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 it's just always like and so and that that i feel that way i'm like Fuck this! Fuck this thing! Now I have to do this fucking thing for what fifty bucks? <laughs> fuck this! Like it makes me yeah. so angry. And I'm yeah, I've done some yeah yeah. That is so so true. How are you feeling, Alexander? I'm I'm feeling pretty good this morning. Uh, I've been traveling. I went to France and Spain <gasps> for a completely debauched and decadent month of like oh, staying, up, wow. staying up late at night, swimming in pools, and like eating. Uh, anything that I wanted and like drinking fantastic gin cocktails uh, late at night on the beach. And, uh, you know, Spain has really gotten into the gin and tonic. They like, like when you order, uh, (laughs) even at, even at like uh, some kind of like beach bar in a little fish fishing town, they will bring you a menu that like shows the different gins and the different tonics Mm -hmm. and how they're going to match them up for you and what goes in the glass. and, And it's like, uh, and they give it to you in a like a a big glass. It's not like oh. you, don't, you nice. don't get like a little skinny, you know, tall boy like you do in the U.S. with like a, a lime on the top. Right. It's like here's a red wine goblet full of yeah. gin <laughs> and a small glass, of, small bottle of tonic. Enjoy, you know. And I'm like, oh, who told you guys about me? But thank you. Um, <laughs> How do you know? <laughs> I love. Oh my god, I love Spain so much. Oh yeah. It's so great. I'm so jealous. 
was this purely a vacation or was it sort of um it was kind of a uh so a couple of months ago my friend uh the writer Sabina Murray mm-hmm. uh who is also biracial Asian mm. um she's uh Irish and Filipina uh so she she texted me a link to a a chateau in Bordeaux just out of the blue no like no explanation I would and love the, to receive a text like that just got a link to a chateau in Bordeaux. Yeah. Out and of I, nowhere. Yeah. And so I, I just texted back. I said, is this an invitation? And she said, yes. And so we Whoa. just set it up. She'd just gotten married wow. um, to her boyfriend of the last, I guess, three, four years. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't like a traditional wedding celebration exactly. Mm. It was just kind of like, we rented this house and my mm. sons and their girlfriends are coming and will you join us? And so... The oh, answer was so, yes. That's amazing. Oh man, I'm so I want to do that so bad. I wish I had fancy friends. Young me, I think that would solve your morning depression if you yeah. just woke up one morning and got just an invitation to a chateau in Bordeaux. Yeah, I think your day would feel a lot better after that. No, I swear to God, I've been on vacation <laughs> and woke up like depressed AF. Oh whoa, shit! Unfortunately. <laughs> So I'm really excited to have you on the podcast because, you know, like I've said before we started recording, we've had we've had multiple biracial guests, but I, I feel like they've not really expressed any um, interest in covering being biracial, you know, in depth. And um, speaking with you over email, I know that you wanted to talk about that. Um, can you like... And I always find that interesting because as a biracial person, it's like something that like I think about constantly almost. It's like, you know, like my comedy, I touch on race all the time. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, you know, on a day to day basis, it's like always on my mind. And having I grew up in Korea um, for probably most of my childhood or at least like a, a solid portion of it. And and I like I feel like as a kid, I was always like comparing the two cultures um, but like, can you, can you give me a little bit of like your relationship to being biracial? Yeah, sure. I am biracial Korean also, uh, mm-hmm. uh, white and Korean. The, the way I grew up with it, I think was, there was a, a where there was a way that I was aware of it. And then there was a way that everybody around me was aware of it. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know how they were aware of it until I got older. And then that... Mm was an interesting kind of revelation you know like uh you may you may know this from your upbringing but biracial kids in korea get treated terribly um yes or especially in the uh, 60s 70s 80s 90s I think less so now, but I think even still now there's, um, I am so glad you brought that up because I feel like the right now, like the Gen Z or the millennial idea is that, uh, or people that are slightly younger than me, they're like, uh, American biracial people. And it's sort of seen as sort of, uh, what's the word? Like a, like a better, or like, it's like, it's great to be biracial versus if you're just fully Asian, because I feel like when you live in like a Western society, obviously if you're part white, that is seen as like superior. But in Korea, um, I always want to like talk about this. Biracial people are seen as like low and there is this like, um, social idea that, 
a lot of biracial people, if you live in Korea, you're probably the assumption is that you're the product of like a sex worker and a mil- American military um, person. Yeah. And so they assume that you are like a like quote unquote like a bastard or something like that. And that that there was a lot of that for me growing up in Korea. And I feel like a lot mm-hmm. of people that grew up in America don't realize that that's how a lot of Asian cultures view biracial people. Um, There's an expression, right? Um, in Korean, something about like being like a, a, a demon. I identify as that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know what? Yes. I, I will, I will look it up later. And, uh, I mean, but, um, you know, I think the, What I wasn't aware of was, so what I was aware of, for example, was like when I was presented to my father's family uh, Mm -hmm. at the age of nine months, when we moved back to Korea from the U.S., you know, my parents, my parents did a kind of reverse migration where, where they, they moved in with my grandparents in Seoul and uh, my father took a job with his, his father in his fisheries company. We lived there for just about three years. Um, my, my dad's siblings were still in the house and, uh, and they had feelings about it that I wasn't always aware about, aware of my, I had a mm. aunt who was furious, mm. uh, for example, about my identity, about my existence. When my grandmother mm. had, you know, seen my father off to Korea, she had said to him, you know, whatever you do, don't marry a blonde-haired, blue-eyed American girl, which is exactly what he did. So he did that. I don't know if that like guaranteed <laughs> it, but you know, yeah. Um, uh, and and my eyes at the age of nine months when I arrived at the house were were not brown or mm. hazel as they are now. Mm. They were a kind of blue that mm. infants' eyes often are. So mm-hmm. uh, so when I arrived, I was also like the first male of the 41st gener like the oldest male with the last name of the 41st generation of chi and here mm. i was with as an infant with blue eyes so they were kind of like demon and then you may appreciate this like yeah. you know my first words in korean as a as a little baby were you know like my mom and dad are in a car uh, traveling somewhere and I'm on my mom's lap and she hears me just say out of the blue, like, obi mechu. <laughs> obi mechu. <laughs> <laughs> and I was, yes. I saw, I'd seen like an advertisement like that we were passing. Oh you know, my God. I just said it. So my, my first Korean words, obi mechu. Obi mechu means obi beer in case you, yeah. anyone listening doesn't know. It's a delicious brand of light refreshing beer i would say yes <laughs> that is so funny so when you say that your relationship to you know you, you being biracial and how people perceived you changed with time is, are you implying that your parents might have shielded you this from this sort of scrutiny like from at a younger age and it wasn't until you were older that you realized like oh this oh yes be perceived as a negative thing certainly i think um I wasn't aware of the reaction in my dad's family, for example. Mm. I wasn't also aware that uh, I wasn't 
I mean, obviously I was a very small child, but they were very concerned that I might get kidnapped. Ooh. Uh, because uh, in the 60s in, in Korea, if you were a biracial child, uh, no one was going to look for you if you went missing. Oh my um, gosh. Like, yeah. Uh, or at least that was the assumption on the part of people who would engage in a certain kind of, I guess we call it child trafficking now. Mm. But. And so there, that was an interesting thing to learn. That was, that was my grandparents' thinking. It wasn't like, like that right. was part of their concern about the mm-hmm. security in the household, right? And they had they they had a they were uh, a wealthy family, so they could afford things like drivers and bodyguards and maids mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. um and they and they deployed them in in keeping me looked after, right. <laughs> Well, I'm really glad that you brought up this topic. I wasn't expecting you to actually bring it up um, because, you know, like I said, it's just like such a such an unknown part. I think for most Americans and even Asian Americans, I think listening right now will probably be surprised a lot of them to hear this um, aspect of being biracial and, you know, coming from a culture that's very homogenous like Korea and, you know, there's other East Asian countries that are like this and it being seen as a, like a bad thing. And it's like something that I've actually really wanted to touch on for a while. And I'm really glad that you brought it up. But can I can I ask you just a little bit off the topic? Because I saw that you also lived in Guam for a portion of your life. How, how did you end up in Guam? So uh, my father was as part of working for his father. Mm-hmm. He was engaged in a series of. Uh, international fisheries project. So there was like a, a skipjack tuna operation that he mm. was putting together right out there and also in truck. So we, like, oh, wow. I remember some of my first memories as a, a kid are of like living in a trailer mm. on the island of truck and, wow. you know, uh, trying to put my brother in the trundle bed. You know. <laughs> <laughs> That is so interesting. And, uh, yeah. you know, also I really liked, it's, it's funny now that I have friends with kids who do this, but I, I was one of those kids who liked to just disappear, um, mm. to just kind of like, so I would, my mom and my brother would be at the beach and I would kind of spy on them from mm. a, a hiding place. And my mm. mother tried to stay calm. She was like, he's, <laughs> obviously he's been kidnapped. Um, i mean for me guam was like a paradise as a as like a four five-year-old kid you know it's where i went to kindergarten it's where i learned to sing kumbaya uh we had a friend my dad had a friend who ran one of the big hotels in guam Mm. so we would go and since my mom was like this beautiful statuesque blonde woman in a bikini um like nobody at the hotel staff was mad about her being by the pool with me. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, uh, and so I, I got to swim in the pool at the hotel a lot. And I had a game that I would like to play where I'd walk out in the sandbar really far and act Mm -hmm. as if my legs were really, really long. Like I was the tallest person. And, um, and one day I was out there and my mom was on the shore. She's like, trying to get me to come in uh-huh. and I, I was like whatever and and then suddenly I see this uh, outrigger canoe going by and these uh these Guamanians are like rowing like uh-huh. this uh and 
one of them is in the front with a harpoon and like a a shadow goes through the water and it was a mm-hmm. it was a manta that they were chasing this really oh, beautiful wow. manta Whoa. that they pulled Whoa. up onto the beach um what are like so there are lots of memories like memory. that or or like yeah. you know the vietnam war was still uh going on at that point and i remember when the pilots got home safe in our apartment building they would there are air force pilots who live in our building mm-hmm. they would uh slap all of the buzzers in the building to tell us that they got home wow, oh, wow. what a romantic i know childhood your your life is filled with so much vivid and romantic Poetic. imagery like yeah. gin and tonics on a spanish beach <laughs> meanwhile my childhood memories are like freaking staying up late and watching porn on my dad's computer and <laughs> getting it Ryan. filled with viruses <laughs> your childhood is valid yeah my <laughs> my memories of saipan are like that my classmate giving me a wedgie and so like i don't have any beautiful memories like <laughs> i remember i remember there were like turtles or something i don't remember i'm blacked like i blocked out all the nice stuff Oh um, I guess one other, th- you know, one other thing I wanted to talk about being, you know, biracial, especially part white, um, I guess, I don't know, you know, obviously, I'm, I'm not sure exactly how your parents met. But I w- what I grapple with a lot is that um, I am sort of a direct result of colonialism. And, you know, this like sort of history of how white people interacted with the rest of the world that is kind of harmful. Um, I think especially, you know, if you're a biracial person listening to this, even if you're not part Korean, if you're part white and something else, like how that interaction came about for the, for most of us is like, there is a lot of violence in the history of that. Even when I said that, you know, even though my story is not this, the assumption that a lot of Koreans think that, you know, just being biracial, they assume I'm like the product of a sex worker who, you know, and a military person, which is like a sort of like a harmful, uh, harmful way. I don't know. Like, I don't know how to put this correctly, but even, you know, I, I have a lot of friends that are biracial and a lot of them are, you know, their mothers are way younger and they were sort of like this, it's kind of derogatory, but like a mail order bride for a much older white man, or there's like, all these like complicated ways that these relationships happen. Um, what are your, what do you, what are your, can I ask like maybe your personal family history and how the, how they got together and like how, how much of that has to do, you know, plays in that role? Sure. I mean, <clears throat> I, I love my parents' story. It's a, it's a very uh, romantic comedy kind of story where my dad was, my dad was living in the same apartment building as my mom. Mm. And uh, he was an engineering student at Pomona uh, and my, uh, at Cal Poly Tech. And my mom was a home ec teacher in Azusa, California. Mm. And so she was having, as home ec teachers might do, a, a poolside buffet party for her friends. Mm. And my dad uh, crashed it. <laughs> Nice. So he was like nice. filling a plate and she came up to him and said, uh, hi, who, uh, who are you? And, uh, and he said, oh, I'm your, I'm your downstairs neighbor, Chuck. And she's like, oh, I, I haven't met you. And he's like, we go to the same church. Um, mm. she's like, I've, I've never seen you there. 
Um, and he's like, oh, I usually arrive late and sit in the back. And the funny th- thing to me about this meeting is that I, my dad never really went to church when I was oh, growing up. Legend. <laughs> like only, only on the holidays, like he would consent to that. Um, I'm not a hundred percent sure that it was a scam, but, um, but his next sentence was like, uh, can I give you a, a lift, you know, the next time? And, uh. And my mom said yes, and I don't know. I don't know why she would have said yes to somebody who was like, "Oh yeah, I usually arrive late." But anyway, <laughs> <clears throat> that was how they met, and they they were friends at first. And my mom was a bit of a night owl, and so he would see her light on when he came home, and uh, he might go up and like knock on her door, and it was very like um, Melrose Place, I guess, but with. <laughs> possibly less drama um so the she had a long distance boyfriend who was at duke university who's he's still there he's like head of the cancer uh i think he's still head of the cancer research program um but she also you know she had other boyfriends that she was dating um and my my dad was going on dates with he went on a date with Jane Fonda before Barbarella. What? What? Because he was oh. teaching. He was teaching Taekwondo and Karate, and uh, and that was it. Was the it was the era when martial arts were like really really popular in wow. California, and so wow. He had celebrity students like Peter Fonda and um, uh, Frank Sinatra Jr. And, wow. um, and so they would, they would, they liked to drive up to these Hollywood parties in my dad's beat up Volkswagen, uh, and Volkswagen station wagon. And then, and then ask the valet to park it. They thought that was hilarious. And then he, he would go into these parties with them. That's amazing. That with is Jane Fonda. so cool. Wow. Your dad sounds like he's definitely a legend. He was a charismatic man. Um, and had like a, he loved practical jokes. And so on my mom's birthday, it was my mom's birthday, I guess maybe like a year or so after they'd met. And Mm -hmm. she had just gotten this bouquet of, uh, roses from her, her Duke long distance love. And my dad showed up and said, um, so you want to smell your roses or can I buy you a drink? Wow. wow. And so he he took her out to a jazz club and they enter the club and suddenly the band stops what it's playing and starts to play Happy Birthday. And the maitre d' leads them to a table by what? the stage. And there's what? like a, a, a champagne bottle on ice. Your, and, wow. your dad was the main character. <laughs> what? Where? This main confidence is astounding. <laughs> Crash a buffet. And just <laughs> hit on the ma- hottest hit on the hottest woman person the there party. <laughs> the, while uh, dating Jane Fonda. And the side and the side woman side chick is Jane Fonda. <laughs> the side piece. <laughs> so the piece is Your Jane dad's Fonda. side piece was Jane Fonda. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> and while your you're mom, nice, Jane, but you're not the main hoe in wow, the story. Wow! 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 And just completely. I mean, wow. your mom had a long-distance boyfriend at the time, and the com- head of Duke. Something. Yeah, and when yeah, you just take him to a jazz, jazz, po- 
wow. the, the, that's straight out of La La Land. This the jazz bar with them this. playing Happy Birthday with the champagne on ice. Yeah, so the, pun- the punchline game is... over. Game <laughs> over. <laughs> the the punchline is uh, so they get to the table and uh, and my mom and my father are looking at each other and my and and my mom says, "What would you have done if I hadn't said yes?" Uh, you know, to the drink. And he yeah. said, but you did. <laughs> so then they, but you did. <laughs> wow. And then that they is, sat down and wow. celebrated her birthday. That is, that's, stri- that's Don Draper. Epic story. Mad Men, Don Draper confidence right there. <laughs> but I, you did say yes. I love how, like, my, the, <laughs> that is, uh, yeah, that is Don Draper confidence. I love that the, the question lead up for this beautiful story was like, how sad are you about colonial, how white people are ruining our lives? <laughs> You're like, well, my parents. <laughs> I was like, ah, race, well, race, politics. <laughs> my father, who was the Asian man. Colonized the white per- woman legend. So they they started dating and uh, mm-hmm. and they eventually... Uh, and they're getting ready to to marry. They my father wow. would propose on a regular basis, and my mom would say, "Chuck, we have to talk about this." Uh, my mom's name is Jane, also, but just <gasps> FYI. Um, Thinking plot twist. <laughs> and she sent home photos to her family in Maine because my mom, <clears throat> excuse me, is from a. She's from what we now call a settler family. Uh, they are, or you know, first family. Is another expression for it in mm. terms of mm. like first white people to come and settle uh, and colonize the U.S. Here we go. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah, this is the tea I was looking wow. for. Wow. So the whitest of the white in Maine. Mayflowers. <laughs> the Mayflowers. The first in Maine. <laughs> they are on a farm that the family has had for over 300 years. Um, wow. In Maine. And they that family had like six or more relatives who fought in the Revolutionary War. And I'm part of this organization. I've never attended a meeting yet, but I definitely want to, which is in order to join, you have to be descended from someone who had a tavern that was open before the Revolutionary War. Wow. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. So I joined because so there's alcohol involved. So. Yeah, you're like, what do we do? Are we gonna get together and drink some meat or something? <laughs> I'm in. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, fuck skull and bones and quill and dagger. I want yeah. to be part of this tavern, tavern before crew. the Revolutionary War secret society. <laughs> so that that's the she brought him home. They didn't realize yeah. he was Korean until he got there. For some reason, the photos didn't. Register. <laughs> it was black you and know, white. Like, <laughs> yeah. like, oh, hello. <laughs> but he had also no. done this very Korean thing of bringing a present for every member of the family. Wow. Wow. And, and that, like, that won over pretty much all of them. I wrote about him for GQ earlier this year, um, uh-huh. and I'm going to put this in the chat just so you can see. Okay. Because they used some of my favorite photos of him. Just got to go on the record here and say that we're going to post a photo onto the Instagram, but on the YouTube, young, too. young me, this is extremely your type. <laughs> wow. 
<laughs> I mean, me out. we got we got people in Bushwick, Brooklyn, dressing the way your father did, but he was the real deal in Texas. <laughs> you, you like these guys who are posing like Alexander's father in Bushwick, Brooklyn. <laughs> you know, it's it's important to think about our relationship to settler colonialism and yeah. to the the like the but I think you know. Most Asian Americans are here because of wars that the United States fought. Right. Like, mm. um, either because those wars destroyed yeah. the economies of their country or because mm-hmm. they came in part because of, of like, you know, the way that they worked with uh, American soldiers and sort of won, won quote unquote, this, uh, mm-hmm. this ticket to the U.S. Um, yeah. And so I... I don't think it's something though, like we're not, we're responsible to it in the sense that it's on our, it's on us to be aware of it yeah, uh, mm-hmm. and to admit, and to allow that to inform how we participate in it politically, you know, like mm. the solidarity we keep with, uh, with different groups like Native Americans, right. uh, other Asian Americans, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, black and Latinx folks, it's all something for us to to weigh, like who are we going to side with and why uh, in this or that political scenario. Alexander, I want to shift gears a little bit. And that is, you, you know, you're a writer and you have uh, referred this, like you referred to this creative pursuit as uh, productively disappointing <laughs> your parents. <laughs> How does it feel? Right. And, you know, how does it feel now that you're, uh, you're, you're, you're more established and you, I guess, obtained it. You are, you are it. You are an established writer now. Yes. Uh, and I have tenure at Dartmouth college, Mm. which, you know, if you're a Korean American, uh, tenure at an Ivy league school as an academic is like one of those things that your family will brag about. <laughs> you did it. Yeah. <laughs> you did it. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I remember, uh, I remember having a, like a really long drunken dinner with my grandfather, my father's father. Um, mm-hmm. We, these would happen when I would come to Korea to visit him and he would, try to get involved in my life in different ways, usually awkwardly. Um, Mm. You know, uh, there was one horrible time where he was like, any woman you want in Korea, you tell Grampy. It felt so (laughs) ominous. I I was like, are you going to What are you going to do? What are you going to do to her? (laughs) What the hell? Any woman. Any woman. And I was like, Any woman you want, you tell Grampy. No. They are all safe for me right now. <laughs> like, like, safe for like me and safe for me. right by right now? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one story that I love about... So my when my dad was dating my mom, mm-hmm. uh, she told me this story about how there was this one time they sent him someone to marry. They sent him a woman that they had arranged uh, for him to marry, and he did not even go to the airport to meet her. <gasps> and so his sister uh, mm-hmm. did, and 
took him out for a drink, took her, took this woman out for a drink, uh, and to try to sort of break the news that, uh, that her brother was not going to be, um, showing up for this. And they just somehow, I don't know if this is on purpose because my aunt was not, it turned out an ally, but, um, they just somehow ended up at the same bar where my mom and dad were having a drink. And this woman, like, I, I, I have so much love for her because she went full K-drama, like throwing glasses across the bar, screaming in <laughs> Korean at him. Like, she was yes. just like, <laughs> wow. Even though I also am like, you know, protective of my parents in that scenario. Right. Like, um, like I appreciate her, her rage. And, uh, yeah. So, um, I'm team your parents, but also, I always like Korean women that make drama, so <laughs> I enjoy it. Yes. So, for example, you might enjoy the story of my of an, another of my aunts who, um, she was the first to be married off to quote unquote protect the marriage chances of her younger sisters, uh-huh. and uh, and she. She set her husband's suitcase on fire and shoved it into the water off of, like, on oh in front gosh. of the hotel where oh they were gosh. honeymooning. And oh, my she, gosh. On Jeju Island, and then she just left. Uh, oh, my God. <laughs> really? And then she... Wow. So, to bring it back, you're yeah. now a tenured professor... You are, oh right, yes. You, you 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 have no, but you you have <laughs> no, made it. Love this st- and, yeah. You have made it in Korean family structures. Yes. But in addition to that, you know, you're you're a best-selling author. Yeah. Were there were there ever, ever moments where you questioned whether or not you would quote unquote make it, or you wanted to just quit? Oh, constantly writing all together. Yeah. yeah, I still kind of every now and then I'm like, ugh. You know, I mean, uh, as I've said, like so much of writing is like just being able to stand it, like just mm. being able to deal with um, any that's the asymmetry of effort and reward. Mm. You know, you could like mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. spend a huge amount of time on something and then, you know, maybe like 30 people read it um, mm. and you could mm-hmm. spend an afternoon on something and uh and suddenly it goes viral and you get paid. Yeah. You know, internet stuff doesn't always pay so well. But like your first book deal, you said you were tremendously underpaid for it. Mm. Right? Am I, <laughs> am I misunderstood? I don't know. <laughs> it was my first book deal to me was strategic. You know, like oh. I had in the sense that I so the book had been rejected like twenty four times previous to that. Wow. Uh and but I had found this editor who was also Korean American, Chuck Kim, okay. who mm-hmm. uh, who was crazy about the book and me. He was this like mm-hmm. hilarious, fast talking hustler, mm-hmm. uh, and or he is, um, and uh, and he was calling me his Mishima, and I was like, mm. <laughs> <laughs> like, like easy, uh, but um, <clears throat> he made a lot happen for. My career, so much of mm. of uh, artistic success, I think, is about finding those people who will mm-hmm. who will say those kinds of ex- extravagant things about you right. to other people, right. not just to you, mm. you know? yeah. and uh, and who just believe passionately in what you've done. And so, after mm-hmm. 
all of these kind of confusing and or enraging experiences that I had with reje- with the novel getting rejected to find somebody who was was like, if I can't publish this book, I'm quitting my job. I was like, all right, wow. we're going to work this yeah. out. So it, getting a book published meant that I was also able to get paid more as a teacher. Mm. And I could apply for uh, tenure line positions. I could, uh, I could get speaker's fees. I could get Right. Uh, right. A better fee for writing something. It all, it all, it became a, a cumulative effort. So, like, while I did only get six thousand dollars for mm-hmm. the hardcover rights, the next year uh, the paperback rights sold for, uh, I think it was forty-five thousand dollars at the time. Wow! Um, and and so in a, in just a year, I had made uh, more money. Uh, right. for right, right. those efforts because of his excitement. And Picador, who bought the rights, had turned the book down in hardcover. Mm. You know? And the editor there was like, oh, you know, I just feel like I let something precious slip through my fingers. Oh, and I was like, I know. That must be such a delicious feeling. <laughs> I know. You come groveling back. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think 11 of the houses who bid on the paperback rights had turned it down previously wow so, wow so i was like all right well 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 <laughs> nice to see you again <laughs> <laughs> but yeah it's uh the you know when people were like what's your second book i was like you want me to do this again and Ooh. i just really was like uh very burned out and you know you go in with all these illusions and then mm. illusions are shattered and the reality emerges and then you get to take stock on like do I want to do this again? Other people, I think that's something that a lot of people don't talk about in relationship to book publishing mm. or artistic endeavors in generally is that mm-hmm. the is that level of self-questioning because some people decide, no, it's not worth it. I won't mm. do it again. But we don't mm. often hear about them because yeah. because they don't publish another book, you know. Right. Um, it's just th- a very raw feeling of throwing your little heart out there on, on the streets. Mm. You know, it's just raw feeling. I mean, obviously, I've never written a book, but just me just doing any sort of performance thing. It's just, ugh. (laughs) My little heart out there on the streets. You're trampling all over it. Um, I just want to say, I think it's really funny about, like, just the Asian parents, you know, stereotype or idea that if you're doing something creative, it's like a disappointment. But then it's like... But your aunt set a suitcase on fire and threw it into the ocean during her honeymoon. That's okay. We're okay with that. that but you want to become that. a writer? <laughs> what the hell? No. Yeah. What the hell are you talking about? <laughs> it's, just, it's funny because they're such human. Like our, our like Asian parents are such humans, you know. And so then they're like, you have to be, a, you have to be a professor. But you know, I didn't pick up this woman from the airport that my dad wanted me to marry <laughs> she threw things at me <laughs> it's like, yeah it's funny my um, uh i think the in korea it's actually like a really esteemed thing to be a poet like right, mm-hmm. right. but it's just that nobody expects you to make any money off of it so right. when i told my grandfather about it for example he was like he laughed and he was like i know he's like i under, you know you'll be very happy but very poor <laughs> you know he says this to me like as we're sitting at his like you know table with 
China and he's got his glass of and a uh, bodyguard whiskey and beside him. <laughs> no, <laughs> it was actually a, a diabetes nurse who would inject him with insulin <laughs> so that he could drink alcohol. <laughs> oh like every God. sip of whiskey. <laughs> On this topic, the last thing I want to ask is, you know, we have a lot of creatives uh, who listen to the podcast and do you have any advice that you find yourself repeating to your students or maybe something that you came to later on in your career that you wish you had known uh, like early on in your creative career? So the industry has changed a great deal since I was Mm. uh, starting out and Mm -hmm. I try to keep that in mind and to try to uh, revisit the advice I give on a regular basis so that I'm not like some, you know, out of touch professor who's like, well, in the 90s, we used Courier, you know, like, um, (laughs) (laughs) it's really good, Um, you know, like, uh, I think some of the early advice I got that still stands that I still often give is that, uh, you know, nonfiction pays better than fiction, although that is, I think that's... Mm changing a little bit but i i think you know partly because there was the 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 emergence of the internet essay that paid like 150 dollars um and still does or um you know or there's also like there there's many fewer places to publish short fiction that pay than there used to be but i think i think some of that is recuperating thankfully Mm. Uh, you know Mm. we the New Yorker has never really recovered, for example, from the era of Tina Brown, where they they slashed the number of stories that they published a year because she said nobody reads fiction in magazines. Mm. And she would say that at parties and all these annoying magazine <laughs> gays that I knew would come back from these parties with her and be like repeating the annoying advice yeah. that she would trot out, you know, like. Right, right. She'd call the magazine like text heavy, which meant there were too many words in it. Mm. Um Mm. Um, anyway, the, the stuff that I advise now is more, I, I try to think through things like I have so many students who are struggling with how to write about trauma, how to write about Mm. racial trauma, how to write about, Mm. uh, uh, the environment, uh, and, and yet who will also, turn in stories that are just like about uh, really average white people. Mm. Um, and none of Fiction the stuff stories. that they care about is in the story. And so I, right. I'm dealing with people who think that writing fiction is about, they don't even know that they think this, but they're performing yeah. it. They're performing the mm. act of writing fiction as an allegiance to a status quo. Mm. Instead That's of so actually writing a story that they right. want to write. Mm-hmm. And so as I negotiate them out of that, I hear things from them like, you know, why do I have to write about, you know, my identity? Uh, publishing only wants racial trauma for me. Um, mm. You know, and that's, uh, that's a very uneven landscape to think about because, mm-hmm. you know, like on the one hand, I can understand having anxieties about like becoming some sort of uh, prop for a certain kind of liberal guilt. Right. Um, I can also 
say that if we if we don't write about those things, then we are effectively censoring ourselves. It's just that we shouldn't right. only write about those things, right? Like, right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think of like, you know, Ocean Vuong's recent book tour, he ran it kind of as like a teach-in where like mm-hmm. every event he was basically like speaking pretty much directly to Asian American writers and Asian writers right. and, uh, and talking about, you know, being, being willing to be inconceivable, being willing to be mm-hmm. like so much more than, uh, than even what you imagine now, but just right. having that willingness to mm. do that. And so I think that is where you can find the heart to do all these things that you may have to do later is to just have to protect that willingness in yourself to have it and then to protect it um well that's like great advice also that reminds me i always bring this up like every episode but that reminds me of like our our reason for starting this podcast too you know like we have this fear as comedians that this i think we were even doing it we were like like editing out our comedy because we were scared that people wouldn't get it or something like that. Maybe that's like something that's going on with your students, you know, like writing about like this white family. Cause like, I can't be too like specific about what I'm going through. Cause people won't be able to consume it. Yeah. And there's yeah. certain <sighs> there's status quos yeah. even as comedians or just archetypes of I'm going to be this type of comedian, but yeah. So people seems, could, yeah. the frustration comes out of the feeling of, disingenuity yeah yeah yeah. i'm like i'm so far removed of what i want to talk about right who am i even anymore when i'm making jokes because i want a certain agent to see that i'm doing this sort of material but i think yeah Yeah. i think the advice you gave is tremendously helpful and it serves as a good reminder of um just stay true to who you are and just remain authentic and it's good to i mean it seems very basic but i feel like it's really good to hear and, I, and remind yeah. yourself of that. Thank you. I think, you know, the, especially in Young Me, you may experience this also, I don't know, but like uh-huh. even just trying to talk about uh, biracial stuff, for example, um, mm-hmm. feels almost too complicated to introduce into a story. But that's the truth of so many people's lives now, more right. even than when I started out. And, uh, and trying to think through things like, you know, Asian American solidarities mm-hmm. uh, within that and think through uh, also like the, the complications of your relationship to whiteness and uh, and white privilege. Um, mm. You know, thinking about like, something that's always been true in my life is I don't know when people think I pass and when, and when I don't. That's something I don't have a meter that tells me. Yeah, like, yeah. This person definitely thinks you're Asian. This person does not, <laughs> you know, like. It just comes out in the conversations, and so in some ways, like every yeah. every new social scenario is has within it like a moment where I figure out whether this person has understood who I am or not. You know, I'm so glad you said that because I was gonna say earlier when you, you what you were saying before in the very like beginning where you were like, oh, how I see myself is and how other people see me. There's like, uh, you know, there's like, it's different and. And as a biracial person, you're right. Like every interaction, somebody somebody will randomly be like, I thought you were white. And I'm like, they thought I was only white. 
And people will be <laughs> like, I thought you were only Korean. And then people are like, you're obviously biracial. I'm like, every every time it's a mixed bag. I don't know what what you're going to say. I thought somebody thought I was Cuban once. <laughs> I've gotten like obviously, I'm sure you get this. Like I've gotten like Eastern European. <laughs> just, just I'm like every time I'm like, what are you gonna? What do you think I am? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> One of my favorite memes is yeah. a WhatsApp chat between uh, a woman and a Korean man. The woman said. Do I identify as a feminist or a feminist ally? And the Korean man writes, "I don't know. I am just normal Korean." Yeah, it's like, it's like, are you a feminist? Like, uh, I am. I am Korean. <laughs> I am just normal Korean. <laughs> so um, good. So good. Well, before you leave us, what is something that you're proud of? Hmm. I I'm proud of. My, I'm proud of my books. I'm proud of being like the first gay male Korean uh, author of fiction. Um, mm. I'm, uh, I'm proud of my students, uh, writers like Ayanna Mathis, Caitlin Greenidge, uh, Angela Flournoy. Um, mm. You know, any doubts I had about the value of writing left after I published my essay collection, mm. how to write an autobiographical mm. novel, and just mm-hmm. heard from so many people about what the different essays in there meant to them, and mm-hmm. and I still get those uh, get those moments from folks, and and so it's all the kind of doubts where I was like, does anybody care if I do this? You know, mm. that is all finally at the age of 54 put to rest. So, um, so that's nice. Um, but yeah, that's, I guess, what I'm proud of. Oh, that's so great. That, that makes me really emotional. <laughs> <laughs> You're, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a tremendous service that you've done. You're a trailblazer and I think your work is incredibly inspiring and, uh, yeah, I just want to say thank you because I, I feel tremendously privileged to be able to have a conversation with you in this capacity. Oh, thank you. One day, you will, <laughs> your fears will be appeased. If you're creative <laughs> listening to this, one day, <laughs> you'll be like, I'm enough. Your parents will be productively <laughs> disappointed. <laughs> um, I just want to, yeah, I want to also thank you for being on the podcast. Also, thank you so much for sharing my tweets because people now respect <laughs> me because <laughs> of that. <laughs> um, that's your credit is retweeted by Alexander Yeah, that's Chief. my credit. <laughs> <laughs> Once retweeted by Alexander. That's me. <laughs> you may you may have seen me from Alexander Chi once uh, shared a tweet that I wrote. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much for joining us again. Where can our listeners find you on social media? Uh, at Alexander Chi on Twitter, mm-hmm. and at Chi Mobile on Instagram. And you can find me on Facebook, but I. Don't like it. <laughs> so, <Okay. laughs> so but, but if you have to, yes, you can find me there too. Um, and is there anything else? I, I yeah. have a lurker account on TikTok. I am not oh. making TikToks yet. I just watch them. 
um, like yours, which I oh, forced my siblings to watch with me uh, a couple months ago. <laughs> I was like, oh, thank you. That's my um, new credit. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I think that's it. I don't and really. Run to, and, and run to your nearest bookstore. Yeah, just get all the oh, books. Yes. All of and them the are books. great. <laughs> all the books. Um, how about you, Brian? Where can our listeners find you? Uh, you guys can find me on socials at It's Brian Park. And what about you, Young Me? Uh, YM Mayor and on TikTok at Young Me Mayor. I wanted to say that my favorite book of yours is Edinburgh, but then I was like, the entire time I was like, am I pronouncing that right? <laughs> so I was like sweating, like, when am I going to say that? Is it is it Edinburgh or Edinburgh? Edinburgh is correct. Uh, if you, oh, especially yes. if you're Scottish. Yes. Um, yeah. But if you say it's it Edinburgh, it's not. It's not like the end of the world in America, okay. where anglicized pronunciations are always technically correct, thanks to colonialism. But um, yeah. but yeah, that Scottish people would rather you probably say Edinburgh. <laughs> um, uh, it's not a novel about Scotland to those who are listening. Yeah. Um, and uh, and thank you. I appreciate that. So yeah, much. and Please. my my recommendation to our listeners is uh, Alexander's collection of essays, how to write an autobiographical novel. Because uh, you know, it's also a great a as great. someone who is on the creative pursuit, a lot of his essays are incredibly resonant and very inspiring. So thank you again, Alexander. And thank you. Uh, yeah, I think that's it. That's you can it. find us on socials at Feeling Asian Podcast. Find us on YouTube. And yeah, if you made it this far, thanks again for listening and we appreciate your support. Bye, everyone. Bye.